Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hi, I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour, a weekly conversation with creative Mississippians from across the state. Today, I'm talking to poet Catherine Pierce, who's our new Poet Laureate for the state of Mississippi. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. Well, we're so glad to have you here and congratulations on being the new Poet Laureate for the state of Mississippi. Thank you, I am so excited. We're very excited to have you. Um, so just for our listeners that may not be familiar with you yet, could you just give us a brief overview of, of who you are and what you're doing in Mississippi? Sure, absolutely. So I have been in Mississippi since 2007. I was born in Delaware and I grew up there and lived in a few places, went to school in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Missouri and moved to Mississippi in 2007 when I got a job teaching at Mississippi State. And I've been there at Mississippi State ever since and I'm a professor of English there and I co-direct the creative writing program there. And yeah, I've been living in Starkville for almost 15 years now. That's great. And have you had you been to Mississippi before you moved for the job? I had driven through Mississippi one time when I was in college on my way to New Orleans once. Um, so I really had not been, <laughs> other than driving through, I hadn't been until I went down for the job interview. So it was a whole new adventure. Yeah, and I bet Starkville has changed a lot since then as well. Yes, it's changed a lot. Yeah, we have, um, it's, it's really amazing actually how much it's changed just in the, the 14 years that I've been in town there. We've got all kinds of new stuff. It's, it's really growing. It's great. That's great. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about the beginnings of your life. You said you were from Delaware. Did you, what was that like growing up in Delaware? Was, did you have a creative childhood? Did creativity come to you later? Yeah, I think I had a, you know, a, a pretty creative childhood. Um, what was really what I felt very lucky about, what I feel very lucky about having experienced in my childhood is that my parents were always just really supportive of my creativity. So my parents were not themselves artists or writers, but they championed it and they were completely on board with whatever I was doing. So when I would come home from school and say, oh, I wrote this poem or, you know, when I'd written <laughs> when I was in sixth grade, I wrote this very lengthy novel um, about a girl and her horse, you know, one of like <laughs> thousands of girl and her horse novels written by sixth graders. Um, and, you know, I would read it out loud to my parents and, and to their great credit, they would listen and they would, you know, say, oh, good job. And, and it, it was, it was the encouragement that I needed. So I, I did write a lot when I was a kid. I read a lot as a child. I was one of those kids who was always, always reading, um, I didn't get in trouble in school very often, but when I did, it was because I was reading too much. <laughs> <laughs> One time my parents got a phone call um, when I was in fifth grade from the, the recess monitor. She was concerned because I wasn't playing with the other kids. I was just sitting in this little 
concrete tunnel and a reading, which is very on brand, I feel like. So, awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so I did a lot of reading and a lot of writing and I was really into theater too um, when I was in high school and in college. So those were, those were things that I always pursued. So I was always really interested in the arts. Um, so yeah, it just sort of felt like a natural extension of that to, to keep that going throughout my life. So in theater, were you writing theater? Were you participating as an actress or what? Yeah, I was I was acting. Um, and when I was in grad school, I did try a little bit of playwriting and it was really fun and I'd like to try it again, but it was not anything that I stuck with. But I, I did a lot of acting when I was younger and I really, really liked that, but have not done it for a long time now. <laughs> That's great. What was your favorite role that you got to play? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Let's see, in high school, I got to play the witch in Into the Woods, which was very exciting. And then in college, I was, so I went to a very small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania called Susquehanna University. And, you know, there were only 1,200 students at the college. So they did a production of Jesus Christ Superstar, and they had to do um, gender blind casting because they didn't have, you know, enough people who could hit some of those male tenor parts. So I got to play Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar, which was very exciting and unexpected for me so that's really cool <laughs> that's a good memory <laughs> it was <laughs> uh so so you said you you had a very creative childhood was poetry something that you knew you wanted to pursue when you went to college did that come during college How, what was that uh form formative years for poetry like I think it came during college. I knew I wanted to pursue creative writing when I went to college. Um, when I was in high school, I was lucky enough to go to a school that had some electives that you could take. And so I took a creative writing class where we did poetry and fiction. And I took a, you know, a summer camp thing with poetry and fiction. And so I was always writing, but I hadn't settled on poetry as being my primary genre until I was in college. And even in college, it wasn't until I was applying to graduate school in my senior year that I kind of said, well, I guess I have to pick one of these genres. So I guess that'll <laughs> be it, um, which was a good choice because while I love reading fiction and I like writing it, but my trouble with fiction is developing a plot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, poetry was a more natural fit for me. But yeah, it really it was in college that I started taking creative writing workshops and I was a creative writing minor in college. And it was really the first time that I got to see what the more professional side of the field was like and got to talk to people who were doing this for a career, my professors and visiting writers who would come in and really got to kind of see that there are people, grown up people, you know, who are doing this. And it wasn't just a hobby. It was something that they were pursuing more seriously. And so that was really, really eye-opening and really exciting for me. That's awesome. And did you have good mentors that helped guide you in, in those years? Yeah, and that was huge. I think that mentorship is just, it's such a crucial thing for, for anyone, I think, but especially in the arts, because it's something you're really kind of finding your way into and finding your way through, and there's not really a playbook for it, for, for really for any of the arts. Um, and so I was very lucky in college. I had a handful of professors who took time and talked to me and took me seriously, sat down with me in their offices and would talk about my work and talk to me about writers I should be reading and, you know, what my options were going forward and what graduate school might be like and what the application process would be like and all of that. And I couldn't have navigated that without, without some help. And so I was very lucky that I had 
mentors who were very willing to just spend that time and really put that energy into it. And that continued in grad school too. So in college and in grad school, I had a lot of really great mentors. So I was very lucky with that. That's great. And so after, when you were finishing up undergrad, did you immediately apply to grad school? Did you take some time? What was that path? I did immediately apply to grad school. Um, and I, you know, I have students now who say, oh, I don't, I want to go to grad school, but I feel kind of burned out. I don't know that I want to go right now. And I say, that's fine. You don't have to go right now. I'm I think I was the only person in my graduate cohort in my MFA program who had gone directly from undergrad. Everybody else had taken at least one year, if not two years or five years or 10 years. And, but for me, I just, I really liked school. I always liked school. I liked being in the classroom. I liked talking to people who are interested in the same stuff that I was interested in. And so it was just the choice that I made. I just wa I wanted to do it. It felt like the right thing to do. It felt like a fun thing to be doing. And so, so I did it. So I did go right through, um, right from undergrad to my MFA and then right from my MFA to my PhD. And, you know, again, I would only encourage people to do that if they feel like they actively want to do it. I wanted to do it, but yeah. certainly it's not the only way to do it. And I think most people don't do it that way. So, but for me, it was a good choice. That's great. So what was your um, what was your master's program and your PhD program like? Were they in in similar cities to where your undergrad was? How did did, did you change cities? How did that affect? Oh, it was such a huge change. It was a big culture shock going from my undergrad to my graduate program. Um, and I've had people say, "Oh, you grew up on the East Coast. Was there a culture shock when you moved to Mississippi?" And I say, "No, there really wasn't." Um, before I lived in Mississippi, I lived in Missouri and I was in a small college town there and I moved to a small college town here. And so there really wasn't that much of a, an adjustment, but moving from my undergraduate experience, which was in a tiny town called Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania at a tiny school with 1200 students. And then I got my MFA at Ohio State in Columbus, Ohio and Columbus State, I mean, Ohio State in Columbus was, maybe it still is, it was the second largest school in the country at that point. Wow. Yeah, it was yeah. massive. I think it still is. And I mean, it was, I forget how many students were there. I'd have to look it up, but I want to say it was hmm, 50,000 students, some, something just enormous and mind boggling. Big, yeah. It was huge. It was huge. And that, that was an adjustment going from tiny, small town, Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania to Columbus, Ohio. And more than that, going from tiny, tiny program to just a huge university. That that was a little tough, um, but I was lucky at Ohio State that my program was small. The MFA program was small and did have a really great, warm community that ended up being incredibly nurturing and just really supportive. But yeah, that was an adjustment. And then from Columbus, I moved to Columbia, Missouri, and that's where I got my PhD. And that, I loved that town. That was a wonderful, you know, fun, funky college town. And I was very happy there. I loved that a lot. So, so I've gone from Columbus to Columbia to Starkville, which is right next to Columbus. So yeah, moved around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Did you find that um, this were, were smaller towns or larger towns? Did you find a different community of poetry enthusiasts? Or was it similar as far as just being able to read at bookstores or have events or programs, et cetera? Yeah, so I think, you know, in terms of finding a community of poets, 
I've always been really lucky because I've always been connected to a university in some way. And so, you know, in grad school, I had my cohort of writers. And then at Mississippi State, I have colleagues and, and students and just other friends in the area who are interested in poetry. So so that's always been, I've been really fortunate with that. Certainly, I think with bigger places, in some ways, it was easier to have access to more cultural options. You know, in Columbus, Ohio, there were always readings happening. There were always live music events happening. And you can find that stuff in smaller places, too, but you might have to look a little bit harder. On the plus side, I think that it's easy for that stuff to get kind of lost in a big city right. like Columbus. And so if you're if you're doing some kind of arts event in Starkville, Mississippi, or in Columbia, Missouri, people are going to pay attention and come out for it. So that's that's a real plus, I think, of the smaller town. This is Sarah Story, the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. This week, we're joined by poet Catherine Pierce, who's our new poet laureate for the state of Mississippi and a professor of English at Mississippi State. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. So um, before the break, we were talking about your lifelong love for writing, creative endeavors, theater. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more. You mentioned that you moved around um, for undergrad, graduate school, and then to be a professor. Has, Has cities and landscapes environment changed the way that you've written or has it stayed consistent over time? That's a great question. I think it's definitely impacted my writing. Um, and especially since moving to Mississippi, I don't know how much location impacted my writing before I lived in Mississippi. I'm sure it did in some way that I can't quite you know, put my finger on. But when I moved to Mississippi, and for the first couple of years as I lived here, people would say, oh, how's Mississippi? Is it impacting your writing? And I would kind of say, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if it is. And I didn't really feel maybe like, it was supposed to be impacting my writing yet. Like I hadn't lived here long enough to feel right. like I had earned that. Um, but after living here for a number of years, uh, the weather really became something that I focused on, um, as I think you know, all Mississippians are really attuned to the weather. And I had never lived in a place with weather as extreme as we get here. I grew up in Delaware, and you know, we would get snowstorms sometimes, and 
every once in a while, the beach would get like the remnants of a hurricane, but that was a few hours away from me. And so I was never that impacted by it. So to be living in a place that regularly experiences tornadoes and really dangerous tornadoes was new for me. I did live in Missouri for a few years and we had some tornadoes there, but we also had basements there. So it was right. just a different, you know, different kind of construction. And so it was never quite as, as scary and visceral as it, as it has felt for me here. And so being very, very aware of the weather and the landscape and the way it's been impacted by the weather, that's been a huge part of my writing. My third book is called The Tornado is the World. And that book came out of um, the tornado super outbreak from 2011 and draws some from some of my own experiences on that day. So certainly the weather and the intensity of the weather here has really impacted my writing. And I've also found myself writing a lot more about the natural world since I've lived in Mississippi. Um, and especially in recent years, just finding various flora and fauna just making their way into my poems. And I, I credit Mississippi for that too. I think Mississippi has such a rich physical landscape and such a lush physical landscape. And there's so much biodiversity here. So, I mean, I've had to I've had to start limiting the number of crepe myrtle references I make in my <laughs> poems. <laughs> so I'm obsessed with crepe myrtles and they just keep showing up. So, but that's something else that I, I don't think I wrote a whole lot about until I moved here. So, so yeah, certainly in that way, I think um, those are ways the subject matters of my poems have been impacted by, by where I've lived. What else has been, what else have you found that's been unique to Mississippi? You said crepe myrtles. Has there been anything else that stood out or reoccurring? <laughs> Yeah, um, so the lizards, there's lots of lizards, and I'm I'm really into the lizards. I really love them. This was something that, you know, we did not have lizards in Delaware. That was, I mean, lizards exist in Delaware, but sure. certainly it wasn't like in the summer they're on your windows or in your house. That was new. And so when I first moved here, and we moved here in the summer, um, and suddenly there were lizards, and they would crawl <laughs> up the windows, and I would see their little feet, you know, and occasionally they'd get into the house, and at first, I was kind of terrified by them when they would get to the house, and, and now they're just these—they're just these little guys, you know. And <laughs> I'm very used to them, and uh, I, you know, I catch them, and I, I do my best not to accidentally cut their tails off as I put a cup over them and deposit them outside. Um, but so that's been something that's been really exciting for me. Um, also, armadillo—we never had armadillo where I lived before. That's a new thing um, for me. And so, a couple years ago. I have two sons and a couple of years ago, my youngest son, who was five at the time, maybe four, he was, I was in the other room and he was looking out our backyard windows and he goes, mom, there's something in our yard. And I was thinking, what could it possibly be? Like what could be in our yard? He knows what a dog is. He knows what a squirrel is, you know, you know what? And I run out there and there's this armadillo just you know, making its way across the yard, taking its time. <laughs> so that was surprising. And we saw, I mean, we've seen armadillos go through our yard a lot. And so just, just kind of being aware, I think it's interesting to move to a place as an adult and recognize that you, I, I, the, the animals that I grew up with and the, you know, the plants and trees that I grew up with, I, I take for granted because I, I saw them so much. But to be to move to a place when you're 30 and look around and say, oh, there's an animal that I never saw in my yard before, or look at that absolutely gorgeous tree. Why have I never noticed that before? It's just been very interesting to kind of pay attention to stuff in this way that 
I wouldn't have paid attention to as a child. So because I took it for granted. So that that's been really nice about moving to this place um, and just experiencing all this stuff with with grown up eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think too, and I wrote a poem about this a couple of summers ago. But it's it's such a lush place, and there's so much, you know, in the summer. It's so hot, it's so humid, it can be so wet depending on, you know, when it is. And plants just grow overnight. Suddenly they're they're taking over your yard or the insects are the size of your hand. And it's all just so big and it's so committed to itself. And I really love that, even if sometimes I'm a little terrified by it. So <laughs> that's, that's also Absolutely. found its way into my writing. <laughs> so true, that's great. Um, so have you how did you decide to become a instructor as well so you're teaching now at mississippi state um was that always something that you wanted to do how did that come about it really wasn't it was kind of a natural progression i knew that i wanted to pursue writing and even when i was younger even like in high school I knew I liked writing. I wanted to write in some way. I thought I might become a journalist because I didn't know there were any, I didn't know there were other avenues that one could take. Mm. And I always, I mean, I liked journalism, but I liked creative writing more, but I didn't really know that was an option. So I went to college and in college, I learned more about creative writing, more about pursuing that professionally. And, but really it wasn't until I was in my second year at Ohio State in my MFA program when I had an instructorship, a TA ship. And um, I was teaching, you know, a comp class, and it was the first time I'd ever taught. And I was surprised by how much I loved it. And I just really did. Even even teaching <laughs> the first class that I taught, yeah, it was difficult. I was only a couple years older than my students. Some of them were older than me because I had some non-traditional students in that first class. And, you know, it was a comp class. A lot of them did not particularly want to be there. It was a required class. They had to take it. But it was fun. It, it became fun. It was parts of it were really hard, but it was also just, it was interesting. It was interesting to be able to talk to people all the time. And that's something that the more I did it, the more I came to love it. And once I was able to teach some classes in the field of creative writing, I loved it even more. And I, it's just the thing that I always say about teaching is that it's never boring. It's just never boring. You know, every time you do it, even if you've taught a class a million times, it's a different class because the students are different. The people are different. The work they're writing is different. And and the conversations you're having are always different and always new. And it's just, it's just fun for me. It's never boring. And I love that about it. That's great. And so at Mississippi State, is creative writing, is that... Um just undergrad program or is there a graduate program as well? There's a graduate program as well. So we have a minor, an undergraduate minor in creative Mm -hmm. writing. And then in the, at the graduate level, we offer an MA in English with a creative writing concentration. And so students who come in and want to do their MA in creative writing, they basically end up taking some workshop classes and they write a creative thesis. So we do offer that. That's awesome. Um, so how is that balancing, how is that for you balancing teaching and writing? Usually it's great. I think in the last year, I think the, the pandemic has made everything harder to balance. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, that's a lot of that is because I've been teaching from home and I have two kids doing virtual school from home. There's a lot of 
there's four people plus a very needy dog in a house and it's been it's been a lot um but under under non-pandemic circumstances it's great it's really ideal um you know because what i'm teaching is also what i'm working on and so Mm -hmm. those things dovetail really nicely so and, and i always try to structure my classes, especially once I get to sort of the the more advanced classes in poetry, I try to structure them around the idea of exploration and questions, because I've learned to kind of approach teaching creative writing as as a tandem exploration with my students. I'm also always trying to learn about poetry and about ways to approach the writing process. And so in class, we look at the process as a kind of serious play. We ask questions. What happens if we break our lines like this? What changes if we start the poem here instead of there? And so it's not that I'm trying to kind of get them to the one right answer as much as it is that I'm trying to have all of us, myself included, think our way through these questions of craft and these ways of building meaning. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that, I mean, it's really, it benefits my work, I think. And I think that working through these questions on my own informs my teaching because I'm I'm working on the same stuff my students are. So we're all kind of doing this together. So it's it's really wonderful to be able to do both of these things. That's great. So how do you do you teach do you still teach beginning classes? I do, yeah. I teach the introductory creative writing class, which is a poetry and fiction dual genre class. And then I teach the intermediate poetry class, which is for undergrads, and then the upper level poetry class, which is a split level with undergrads and grad students. Do you ever, so do you sometimes have students that don't, aren't familiar with poetry, or maybe this is new? How do you, how do you get them from knowing nothing to, to, I mean, I just feel like it's such an intimidating process for so many people, you know? Yes, and I'm on, honestly, that's the biggest hurdle is is yeah. trying to help them see that it, they don't need to be intimidated. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've had so many students, and especially at the introductory level, the students taking that intro to creative writing class are often coming from disciplines all across the university. So most of them are actually not English majors. Some of them are, but mm. a lot of them are accounting majors, or they're animal and dairy science majors, or they're engineers, or you know whatever. And they're taking the class, Um, you know, maybe it's satisfying a requirement for them, they're getting a credit for it, and some of them are genuinely interested in it, but some of them are kind of thinking, well, I mean, I have to take something, this one seems okay, and maybe they're interested in fiction, but they're a little more anxious about the poetry half, and what I always try to let them know is that they, not only do they not have to worry about getting it, they already get it. They're, you know, they come in and some of them say, well, you know, I, I read a few poems before, but they didn't really do anything for me. I didn't really get them. And they may have been told before that they have to kind of unlock the poem, right, or solve the riddle somehow. Right. There's, you know, they're doing it wrong. Um, or they may have never read any contemporary poetry. Uh, they may have only read about people whose lives and voices are completely different from their own. And so I teach a lot of contemporary poetry. And we talk a lot about how poetry at its heart is about paying attention and is about just being accurate and being truthful about your observations of the world. And once they start to see that that's that's what it is, and they're already doing that, then they get a lot more comfortable with it. And we read a lot of contemporary poems. I think that they like seeing that poems can be written in our own contemporary language and they can be written about all kinds of different things and they can be funny and 
you know, they can be startling and they can be weird and they can be whatever you want them to be. There's a huge range of poems out there. And so I try to teach a lot of different poems and really just try to get students at the intro level thinking about being specific and being accurate. And everybody can do that. So once they kind of give themselves permission to try it and to not feel so anxious about it, a lot of them really start to enjoy it. And I mean, I've had students come in who have been so anxious about it, who have written just amazing stuff once they give themselves the chance to do it. So it's actually one of my favorite things to do in teaching is working with students who are a little nervous about it and are thinking, oh, I don't think I like this very much. And I, I love when I can <laughs> convert somebody to poetry. This is Sarah Story, the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Slowly, we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll stop traffic, grab one out of the road. And then our friends found out, and our vet would call us. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We are now a full-fledged, nonprofit turtle rescue. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour, a weekly conversation with creative Mississippians from across the state on MPB. I'm Sarah Story, the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today we're joined by Catherine Pierce, who is our new poet laureate for the state of Mississippi and a professor of English at Mississippi State University. We're so glad you're here with us today, Catherine. I'm so glad to be here. So I'd love to hear, so you've just been named Poet Laureate for the state of Mississippi, which is so exciting. We're very grateful to have you. So for those who may not be familiar with what that role is or what that means, could you just give us a quick overview of, of what that what that means to be a Poet Laureate for a state? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, you know, mainly what it means is that I get to serve as an ambassador for poetry in our state, which is something that I feel very passionately about and I'm so excited about. And for me, at the heart of that is my absolute belief that poetry is for everybody. And so my goal as Poet Laureate is to connect with people across the state and to help get people excited about poetry, especially people who might have thought that poetry didn't really connect to their lives or wasn't for them. And I'm really excited to work with young people and to go into some schools and communities and help younger people discover all these joys of poetry early on so they can carry that with them as they grow up. So I'm just very, very excited to, to work with people across the state and talk about how poetry can be such a wonderful and transformative presence in our lives. Absolutely. Um, we're excited that uh, you're getting started now with this. And uh, do you have any, any ideas and projects that you're ready to talk about yet? 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on a number of things, and I'm working with a number of, of agencies in the state, which I'm very excited about. But one thing that I'm starting on very soon is I'm going to be writing a monthly column for the Clarion Ledger that is going to talk every month about some aspect of poetry and then give a little writing prompt so that readers can get started on some poems of their own in a very low-pressure, fun way. So it's I'm, it's I'm thinking of it as kind of an extension of the work that I do in my classes at Mississippi State. You know, it's really, it's for everyone. And I'm hoping that these prompts will be things that everybody can do and regardless of, of age or you know background or occupation um, I'm imagining these as being something that the the grown-up sitting with a cup of coffee on on Sunday afternoon might want to do and also the the first grader who needs an activity for the day maybe some parents can sit down with that child and, and work on this together so I'm hoping this will be something that just helps Mississippians get to connect with poetry not only as readers, but also as writers, and to kind of get their feet wet with it. Um, or if they're people who are already writing poems, then gives them another chance to, to dive in and kind of explore some new options for their work. I'm very excited about that. That's great. We'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Um, what else have you, what, so you, you mentioned you've been, you, like most of us, have been in a house with three humans and a dog the past year. <laughs> what, what has the year looked like for you? Oh gosh, it looks like a blur, honestly. Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. it's so blurry. Who knows? Um, no, it's. I mean, it's been, it's been intense. And I mean, I've I've been very lucky that that most of the, uh, the the people that I love are are safe and healthy, and I've been tremendously lucky in that way. Um, and I've been lucky too that I've been able to work from home. I've been able to teach my classes virtually. Um, so it's been there have been a lot of challenges that come along with all of that, but I also recognize how lucky I am to have that option. So that's been, um, it's been wild. It's been wild watching people adapt. And honestly, it's been really heartening in a lot of ways. I think that we have all seen people just extend so much grace to one another in this past year. Um, and it's really just been really heartening for me to see that. I know that in teaching my classes, I was a little nervous at the beginning of the academic year thinking, well, I've never taught online before and I hope I can form connections, especially because in the classes that I teach, they're workshop classes and they're really based in the idea of community. They're small classes, they're capped at 15 students, which is wonderful and it lets us really get to talk to one another and get to feel very comfortable and get to talk about one another's work in very candid ways. And I was a little worried about how we were going to make that translate into an online class. But it was wonderful. I mean, it really, and I mean, I credit my students with this. They really, really, you know, rose to the occasion, did an amazing job. But we would meet um, synchronously. So we'd, we'd all be there online and we'd be there in the mornings and we'd just be there on our computers and our little boxes. And it ended up being wonderful. I think it gave all of us a chance to feel connected and to feel that sense of community that maybe was missing from a lot of our lives in the last year because we would come together and we, we would have this small class and it's kind of fun to see the ways technology would inform creative work. We got to explore some stuff that I had not explored before. Um, I know that, for example, I taught this one night class in the fall that was a one night a week upper level poetry workshop. And the students in that class were really, they were willing to kind of go with whatever. And so I would give them, we'd do prompts and exercises and, and one night, 
kind of far into the semester, maybe it was in November, we were studying um, a kind of poem called A Nocturne, which is a poem about nighttime and kind of the, the liminal spaces that nighttime can offer. And I said, all right, we're going to do an exercise and it's going to be weird. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn off our cameras and turn off our mics and we're all going to take 15 minutes and turn off all of our lights and we're going to write in the dark for 15 minutes. And, you know, you can have a flashlight or a phone or whatever, but we're going to write in the dark for 15 minutes. And then we'll come back together and we'll see how that experience changed the way that our brains worked and the way that we sort of approached our writing process. And it was great. You know, we all, I did it too. And then we all came back together and we shared what we had read or what we had written. And it was, I mean, that's not something that I could have done in the classroom. And it was, it was just so, it was so exciting. It was so fun to find the ways to work with the technology, you know, instead of in spite of it. So and there is certainly a learning curve, I think. But as as the year went on, I got more and more comfortable, and my students just were were really incredible all year. So, so that that was a real joy, um, and it was wonderful to get to spend time with my family in this very intense way. It was not always easy. I mean, there were definitely times when I think all of us would have loved a break from one another, and we were not getting that break. But you know, it was also really a chance for all of us to just hang out in a really different way. And that's something that I feel very grateful to have gotten to do. So it was a difficult year, but it had, for me, it had its its silver linings. Um, so, and I'm also very relieved that we seem to be coming out of it now. So, <laughs> Do you feel like you're, were you able to be creative? Did you need to take a break from creativity? It's been interesting to hear how creative people have, have responded yeah. you know, in, yes. in a variety of ways. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly, that has been very difficult. That's been probably the hardest part. Um, you know, I mean, the hardest part of the pandemic was the pandemic, obviously, and just all of the, the stress and anxiety and fear that came along with that and all the, the suffering and watching people go through what they went through. But um, from sort of a, a personal side of things or a professional side of things, yeah, I did not have a lot of time or brain space for writing this year. And that was hard. Um, my time and energy, you know, there's a limited amount of it for everyone. And for me, it went to teaching and it went to parenting and it didn't go as much to writing. And, and that was okay. I mean, I think I talked about extending grace to people. I think we've also had to extend some grace to ourselves this year. And that was something that I did feel able to do. I was able to say, okay, it's all right that I have not gotten a lot of writing done this year. There's, these are extraordinary circumstances. Um, but now I'm trying to get back to it. Um, and it feels a little bit like, like the, the gears are a little creaky, you know, I'm trying to kind of get back into it and yeah. it's difficult. I'm someone who needs, I need silence and I need uninterrupted time. And those two things have been very hard to come by in the last year. So that's been, that's been a challenge, but I'm, I've been saving stuff up. I think I've been making notes. I've been jotting some things down. I have managed to write some poems, but you know, it's it's okay. One thing I've Absolutely. learned from doing this for as long as I have is that it, it comes back. You know, it, it ebbs and flows, and it's okay. Yeah, and and I'm sure it's constantly evolving and changing. So yeah, absolutely. Um, what have you been able to think or or look back yet, and and been able to determine if there's anything that changed the past year, whether in 
in the creative process or in teaching that you will keep moving forward? Yeah, I think in teaching, yes. Um, in teaching, actually, one thing that I started doing at the beginning of every class, and this was just a way to make sure that students felt comfortable interacting online and to get them comfortable speaking to each other in these weird little squares that we have. Um, I started opening every class with a question. That was how I took role every day, was opening every class with a question that had nothing to do with anything we were studying. They were just questions like, would you rather go to an amusement park or an aquarium today? Or, you know, what is your very favorite breakfast food? Or whatever, these very low stakes questions. But they sparked these great conversations and they really did, I think, help all of us get more comfortable talking to one another, which fed directly into the critical conversations we'd have about one another's work. And so that was that was a real breakthrough for me. I'm kind of thinking, yeah. why did I not do this in the past 14 <laughs> years that I've been teaching? This was really fun and it really did benefit the class and the connections that we all made. So I certainly want to incorporate that. Um, and some of these things I've learned from online teaching, I hope to keep in, in even in, in the in-person classroom. Um, in terms of poetry, I think I, I'm interested to see how the last year is going to start manifesting in my work. I think that I don't know yet. I think I'm going to have to kind of see what what happens. I'm sure it's going to be there. And I'm curious to see how it's going to start showing up and how my creative work is going to be changed by by what we've all been experiencing and watching for the past year. So I don't know yet. It's going to be interesting to see. Um, I do think, if anything, it's made me even more grateful for those moments of <laughs> quiet and creative brain space that I that I can get when I can get them. So I certainly don't take those for granted. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, we were doing a similar prompt at the beginning of our staff meetings at the MAC through COVID because yeah. we were virtual as well. And the most heated discussion was, what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Oh, oh, that's a good one. Yes. Oh, yeah. People have very strong feelings about oh, yes. Girl Scout cookies. So, I mean, obviously the right answer is Thin Mints, though, right? Like you know, you would think, but there, there was varying, a lot of varying opinions. I can imagine. I can but, imagine. Yeah. That's a good one. I'm going to use that next semester. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, what else, is there anything on the horizon that you want to share with um, our audience today? Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm I'm working on a new book that I'm hoping to right. hoping to be able to spend some time on once we once my kids start in person school again. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that'll be exciting. Um, and that's a that's a project that is going to, at least as of now, it's going to kind of connect to what I was talking about a little bit ago about hooking into the natural world and being more attuned to the natural world. Right now, I'm calling this project Dear Beast, and the poems are looking closely at animals, and I'm going to be writing a series of odes to various unbeautiful animals, like the burrowing crayfish or the paper wasp <laughs> and things like that. Um, so that's something that I'm excited to be working on. I'm also working on a collection of essays about parenting. So that's something else that I'm trying to kind of find some some time to, to be working on. So I'm doing that. Um, and I'm working with um, Ann Fisherworth, who is a poet at University of Mississippi, on um, editing a, a book that's it's in the very early stages right now, but we're working on putting together 
um, a, a literary field guide to Mississippi, which is something that we're we're very excited about. So that's another project. So there's lots of lots of stuff in the hopper right now. So it's it's exciting, even if there's no time to <laughs> to do it all. But it'll get done. It always does. So it just, you know, it's good to have. It's good to stay busy. Absolutely. And um, so we'll all be on the lookout for the Clarion Ledger. And where else can people connect with you online? Yeah, so I am, my, my website is katherinepierce.net. And so I have various links to poems and a bio and stuff there. I'm on Twitter. It's Katie P. Pierce is my handle. And Katie is with a K, even though Catherine is with a C, which is very confusing. But it's <laughs> what my parents did when I was born. And so it's never changed. Um, so I'm there and I am on Mississippi State's website. I'm on Instagram. So you'll find me all these places. This is Sarah Story, the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app.